Welcome back to the Charlotte Angel Connection, the Charlotte area podcast linking entrepreneurs, investors, and the broader Charlotte community. As you know, our goal here is to interview the individuals who are building, shaping, and influencing entrepreneurship in the Charlotte region so you can stay invested in Charlotte's growth. Today, we're fortunate to have the CEO of PetScreening.com, David Stunja, join us. Uh, really fun interview for a number of different way, reasons. Uh, one, uh, PetScreening.com just um, just closed a, a nice little round. Um, so wanted to kind of dive straight into it with them while it was fresh in, fresh in the front of their mind, what the process was like, hurdles that they ran into, um, and just really kind of get a sense of um, how they traveled through that path. Um, also, as many as you know, David uh, previously worked with Bank of America, was looking to land with the startup here in town, ended up with Juan Garcon and doing some writing for Start Charlotte, uh, interviewed a number of entrepreneurs over the, over the course of a year and a year and a half, uh, ultimately found PetScreening.com and made what I would imagine is a leap many people would like to make, which is from a big corporation to a small, fast-growing startup. So. We talked with David a lot about their fundraising process. We talked with them some about his own experience making that that leap. Um, and then we talk a lot about what lies out ahead in the future and what I think is a fun, dynamic, you know, hour-long podcast. So hope you enjoy another edition of the Charlotte Angel Connection with David Stunja of PetScreening.com. So David, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me, William. So... Um, We've uh, we've known each other for a while, and you um, helped do a, a lot of interviewing on the Start Charlotte side of things. So it's good to have you or see you on the other side of the table. Thanks, man. Yeah, I, I could probably still dig up the the Gmail email I sent to William. Just hey, I saw your website. Yeah, I think we have something in common. That's right. Can we share stories? We met online. Yeah. Yeah. So um, anyways, that's not talking about meeting online. <laughs> but um, anyway, so. You've um, how long have you been with pet screening? It's been over a year. I okay. mean, I probably this week crossed over the full year mark, uh, and so a full year full time. So I dabbled maybe for an extra month before then of just coming out of one BAC and yeah. plugging away at lunchtime and sitting on my couch late at night. Um, plugging away, so trying to help out and learn the reins, but it's been a full year of full time okay. at pet screening. So let's um, let's focus on pet screening for a little while. Yeah, um, kind of what it is, where y'all are in life cycle, et cetera, et cetera. But I do want to talk about your transition out of Bank of America to pet screening as well, because um, I think you've done something that there's probably at least one or two other people in town would be interested in doing. I'm passionate about it. Like, yeah, I guess chills to yeah. talk about it. Yeah. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah. So, uh, so we'll cover that in a few other things, but, um, so petscreening.com, what's, um, what is it, the premise behind it? Um, let's get started there and we'll roll with the punches. Sure. So we live in the pro- residential property management world. So you're renting a single family ho- house, you're a manager of all these rental properties or a big apartment building and you have buildings all over the country, right? Um, you may have tens of thousands of units or hundreds of thousands of units. Yeah. And so when you think about pets in those in your rentals, it's essentially the market breaks down to about 60% of all U.S. households have a pet. Okay. And so a majority of your residents are going to have pets. And so the main issue that we solve, we want to handle all of your pet and animal processes and problems and solve them for you essentially. And so the sh- most short-term immediate problem we're solving is you see it in airlines with emotional support animals. That's the common term for them, essentially. So people are you know, taking their dogs and saying, hey, this is my emotional support animal. I'm allowed to have it on the airplane in the seat next to me or at my feet, right? And so that same exact thing is happening in apartment buildings. Mm-hmm. And so... So I own an apartment building, I open it up for lease, I say no pets, um, and somebody says they have emotional support, is that how it works? So to a degree, right? And so if you say, you know, I do not allow pets, no pets allowed, that's my policy. Um, If someone comes in and says, I have an assistance animal, there's a specific way that you're, you you have specific questions that you are legally allowed to ask. Yeah. So you can ask. 
do you have a disability? Yeah. You cannot ask, what is your disability? Okay. And so then there's other gray areas mm -hmm. to the rules of reasonableness and documentation to substantiate that. And there's different rules for housing, airlines, and ADA, general public, Starbucks, you name it. Yeah. And so there's across the three of them, there's mass misinformation. Oh, well, I would imagine so. And especially within housing. And so then you have, there's a commerce built around this misinformation online. So you could go online, you could print out a certificate, you could get an ID card. Honestly, none of that carries any weight. Like the, the, the stuff that they're printed on, the paper or plastic they're printed on, it's not worth anything. Yeah. And so, um, so you can go buy all this stuff online and there's blogs and there's all this information and it's just confusing everybody. It's confusing pet owners, animal owners, it's confusing property managers, it's confusing uh, therapists, like therapists or doctors or medical professionals don't even know what to call these things. Mm -hmm. um, so long story short, without going through this whole education series, we are, have become the experts of the housing piece of this puzzle and to say, hey, we will, you can outsource that whole process to us as someone comes in and says, I have an assistance animal, it's my emotional support pit bull, or if it is a legitimate assistance animal, um, they can come to us, they submit their information, they have like a little digital profile that they submit to us, specific assistance animal uh, questions and areas where they can upload documentation. And again, we've we've talked with HUD, who has set these rules, which is housing and urban development. Mm -hmm. uh, we play by the fair the rules by the Fair Housing Act, and so we have um, become the expert as to how do you legally and efficiently or effectively validate and verify these assistance animal requests. And so that's assistance animals. So we essentially take that off of property manager's plate. So if you think of some of the problems that a big property manager would have, it's, okay, I'm just trying to limit turnover uh, of residents and applicant turnover. I'm trying to minimize staff turnover. I'm trying to keep my staff. Yeah. Where today you may have someone working at the leasing desk on site, the longevity there is like six to nine months, 12 months, like short term. Yeah. And so you have a lot of knowledge here and a lot of retraining, a lot of retooling. So because they're managing the leasing desk, which means they they have to know all of that information. Um, they're the as face. Soon as, so as soon as they walk out the door, you've got to quickly bring somebody else up to speed on not just everything else, but how to handle what questions they exactly. ask, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, what so, can you legally ask? What yeah. can you not ask? Um, what information do you collect? Where do you store that information? You can't just you know leave sensitive medical information just out on a desk somewhere. So how do you handle all that? So the uh, the benefits uh, there's a ripple effect of benefits by using us for assistance animals uh, on the pet side of things. So we also give pet owners a way to create this digital pet profile. So you're coming in, you have a pet, uh, you're applying to a pet-friendly apartment building or a single-family house. So we have a way for you to submit your pet application or profile digitally. Mm -hmm. And so essentially today, the benefit to property managers is today they're trying to collect vet records, they're trying to take a photo of your dog for their records, or have you send them a photo for your records. They're just collecting a lot of information from all different places. And as a pet owner, you don't necessarily have all that information in one place. And so we're saying, let's streamline it, let's create a pet profile where they can upload all this information. And so this is on the application phase. So um, when someone's coming in to apply, they upload all this information, we don't believe every pit bull is a bad pit bull. There's yeah. some sweethearts out there, you've probably met one, I've met a few. Yeah. But that's usually because they have a very responsible pet owner. So we do believe that the pet owner has a big, um, has a big piece in this whole risk equation of how risky is this pet. And so then we ask a series of questions as to how accountable and responsible is this pet owner? Do you keep your dog on a leash? Do you, um, is it, uh, do you take it to the vet regularly? Do you have it vaccinated? Do you clean up after, you clean up after the waste of this pet um, on a consistent basis? Uh, a series of questions, has it bit anybody? Has it bit another animal or another pet? A lot of questions that get to the behavior, the temperament, and the accountability of the pet owner. 
we basically collect all this data, age, weight, breed, sex, uh, temperament, and ownership behavior, and put it into our algorithm. So we have a proprietary algorithm that basically generates a, a risk score. So we've come up with a clever marketing term. It's our FIDO score, which yeah. is similar to FICO score. Right? Yeah. And so the FIDO score, one to five scale, so we call it one paw to five paw. Okay. Five paw is your safest scenario, one paw being your riskiest. So we are presenting this and educating property management firms of saying, hey, you can use this data to uh, change your pet policies or to optimize your pet fees or your pet rents yeah. or give for your more responsible pet owners, you could look like a hero and provide a great customer experience and give them a small concession on your pet rent. And so it's a positive customer experience. Yeah. So we're saying, hey, if you use this data, you could optimize all this stuff. You could innovate your pet policies where we're having to educate a lot of property managers today and they're no one's sitting around saying, man, how do I innovate my pet policies today? So we're niche in the sense that we're solving the assistance animal problem for housing providers, which is really a hot topic in the industry. We're giving them more data um, on their pets that are moving into their property and pet owners. Uh, but you also have some inherent pet risk for the folks moving in who don't have pets where mid-lease they may go adopt a dog and they're not waltzing into your office to say, hey, I just adopted a dog. Why don't, let's talk about adding this to my lease, right? Yep. Or they are using dog sitting services where it's not their dog or they're watching a friend's dog uh, every weekend or their girlfriend or boyfriend's coming over every weekend with their dog. Um, in any of those cases, it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday over a weekend. That's four days. You might have a pet on site that's not on your lease, and you as the manager are still culpable and liable for that pet on site, where if that pet's in the stairwell or an elevator or gets loose and is running around the property, it's a puppy, yeah, and comes up and nips another dog or, or nips, God forbid, a child yeah. on site, you're still responsible for that pet on site, and you don't have, at that point, you don't have any accountability. So we're saying uh, for non-pet owning applicants and residents, you should have them go through our small questionnaire. What essentially is documentation, it's reminder, it'll put um, those reminders in front of their face where they say, yes, I agree to your policies. Um, I will not go adopt a pet without your prior permission. Uh, it's just about having that line of communication open um, because it's becoming an issue for, for property managers. Oh, I bet. So, um, really cool. How long, how long has it been around? So, it started in 2016, and you alluded to it at the beginning. So, um, I'm not a founder. I'm essentially what I've, I think people will coin, coin a, a joiner. Okay. And so, um, I'm part of the founding team, per se. But so pet screening's been around since 2016, so that's when it went through kind of like the whole business model generation uh, phase, right? Yeah. How do you get out? How do you understand um, what does our business model look like? Are people interested in this? Is it solving the problem X, Y, and Z? And how do we stand up the, the platform to support this? And so we can test it. So then that took us to middle of 2017. From I think the first dollar we made was on, uh, funny enough, on uh, April twentieth of twenty seventeen. Okay. Um, so uh, that was our first revenue generating day. Uh, a lot of testing still went on in that first year. Twenty eighteen was the year of like, okay, I think we have something. Yeah. So I joined in July of last year, and really throughout the past year, it's been let's get that product market fit. Let's like make sure and that we have our feet planted on the ground and we can start growing roots down, right? Yeah. And so that's what the past year um, has gotten us towards and you know, the rest of 2019, 2020 going forward, it's like, okay, we're, we're on to something, let's grow and let's get sales ramped up and 
we'll talk about it, but just closed a round of investment too. So yeah, no. So that's, a, that's a big piece of it. Yeah, you're leading me to exactly where I wanted to go, which is um, first dollar of revenue in you know, April 20th, 2017. Um, you joined the firm in July. No, first dollar of revenue. April 2017, you joined the firm in July 2018, yeah. and here in July, or I guess technically June of 2019, uh, the company raised money. Yep. Um, so you were around for, I would assume, the entire um, money-raising operation, so to speak. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so um, how was it? Um, it was eye-opening, yeah. and I enjoyed it. We had, uh, I would say, we had a positive experience. Yeah, in that we were really, we were looking for money, yes, but we were looking for the right partners, and we were we were cognizant of that from the start. When did you start looking? Do you, I mean, uh, um, I mean, I guess you're always thinking about it, right, yeah. on the startup stage, but when did the flag really start to go up and say, we're close enough, we've got something, it's not a, it's not super dilutive at this stage, Yeah, let's raise, let's raise the flag and raise the money. So, um, the founder of the company has been the angel, so I'll kind of start even before that. Okay. And yeah, so, that makes we're, we're, we, we had a clean uh, cap table going into it, yeah. and so... I think that's unique. Yeah. Founder is John Bradford. John Bradford yeah, yeah. out of uh, Cornelius, yeah. uh, North Carolina, and so John's background comes from single-family property management. He built a, a sizable single-family property management firm up in Cornelius, yeah. like up at the lake. And so, pet screening started from him seeing problems in the industry, which is very important. Yeah, and used contacts and used his his Rolodex to get out and say, hey, kick the tires on this. Is this a thing? So I start there. We really, so John and I really started talking about it. We introduced the idea of Q4 of last year, okay. whether that was November or you know December. It accelerated over Q4 of last year of saying, hey, I think it's, you know, we need some external, we need money, yep. right? It always starts there. And so... Uh, we, we started that discussion in Q4 of last year, and then the interest started to come at the end of 20, like right at the end of 2018 and carried over to January of 2019. Okay. And we, the company, John, pitched in the middle of January uh, the first pitch to okay. our lead investor. Okay. Yep. So, fair to ask how many investors were in the round? So, we had three investors in the round. Three investors, yep. and so you raised? We raised a million and a half. Okay, so one and a half million? Yep. Okay. Yep. Um, institutional or no? Um, or are they, pro they uh, local or just angels in general? No, institutional. Okay. Yep, all three of them. Yeah. So, um, and to get three, you had to pitch 200 or four? So, we pitched... I want to say we pitched five to ten. Okay. And so some of them were informal pitches, yeah. right? And so the lead investor has a partner that they invest in a lot of deals with. Yeah. So we had interest from both of those. You know, we we pitched the lead investor to start the, and then we did kind of virtual pitches to their partner firm. They came. They were gracious enough and came to visit us and. Um, kind of do an on-site quote-unquote interview. It's just like a could we see our could we see each other work together? Yeah. Which we really we really appreciated that and like that um, and valued that through the process. Just that's our personalities of you know let's make sure this is a quality person we're about to do business with. And then uh, so for full disclosure, those two don't have. Uh, they're just high-quality venture capital firms. They do not have contacts, and they're honest about this. They do not have direct contacts, or do they do not invest specifically in real estate-esque or adjacent companies yeah. or ideas, right, or startups. And so we're property management, so we were like, this would be valuable to all of us if we brought in a more strategic investor uh, someone that invests into this whole real estate and has contacts of, okay, the check's written, the term sheet's signed, 
put it down and check the wires in the bank, right? Yeah. And then uh, you said that by carrier pigeon. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I wish. I wish. Not really. No. <laughs> it felt. felt so. Yeah. Um, we, uh, you know, they they have those connections that when the money's in the bank, they can the next day send an email, make a phone call to a decision maker, right? Yeah. And make that introduction. We still have to make the sale, of course. We got to still engage them and, you know, carry it across the goal line. But we wanted someone that, you know, could make introductions. I was... Um I was talking to a, a young entrepreneur, and it's different, um, but not completely and totally. Um, I was talking to her last night, and she said, "How do I know how much money to raise? Um, you raise one and a half million. Um, how did you know how much money to raise?" So, I'm I'm hesitating because yeah. we had an idea. We were coached uh, to that's not enough. Yeah. And so one of the valuable things and we valued in the lead investor and our investors in general, it's they helped us along the way to a degree. Right. Yeah. Like they didn't show us here's a recipe. Yeah. But they were like, we think you need more. Yeah. And so it was a very back and forth conversation. And even part of the community had uh, engaged us and educated us on, you know, how do we, so we had some informal, I guess, mentors, yeah. I guess, that would help us, you know, figure this out. But at the same time, we still did the math of saying, hey, here's about what we think we need for a two year runway, yeah. year and a half, 18 months to 24 months, right? And so we we started low, we went high, we ended up at a million and a half. We had conversations late in the game that it could be different than a million and a half, but um, I think it's the right number that will get us, you know, some some firepower to get us through the next two years. So interesting, not surprising. Um, you started off with a concept. You just like any startup would be um, as flexible as they go out and have a conversation and learn throughout the way. And nobody critiques you for not knowing the exact number um, when you go out and start talking to people. Yeah, that was that was eye opening to me. Um, how how much back and forth and almost like it felt like I don't I feel like we got lucky, but it felt like. Uh, more of a, you know, how do we, how do, how do we make this work? We're, we're interested in, in emotionally invested in this idea. How do we make this work? At the same time, we still had to negotiate, and we yeah. still had to make sure all the terms work and that we were aligned on everything. But so there wasn't. I think I'm making it sound easier and nicer than it really was. Uh, the biggest takeaway, in my opinion. And we've known each other, so I've, I've I've floated around and I've been adjacent to the whole startup world for for a long time. The most eye-opening thing to me is that it just takes a long time, yeah. a long time. And even when you find the right investors, it takes a long time. You're um, they're asking you every single question because it's uh, because they have to, yeah. like because they have they're using in some cases other people's money, yeah. right, and other other institutional money to invest in you guys. So they have to make sure that they're asking every single question that comes to mind, and they're not you know keeping one in their back pocket. Yeah. And so questions were coming in up until the eleventh hour, like up until days before the the thing is signed the term sheet's signed and uh, money's wired into the account yeah. and so that was the most eye-opening thing to me as to like it wasn't pitch due diligence signing term sheet negotiating yeah. the term sheet it was very fluid due diligence throughout yeah right so did y'all like proofread each other's emails to make sure you weren't saying something that was going to get the check denied or anything like that no 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 <laughs> we weren't that like we weren't that like tight on it yeah. but um we bounced around we you know bounced a lot of things against one another we yeah. spent a lot of time on the pitch deck we made sure our pitch deck was um you know I's dotted, T's cross, numbers, you know, understanding all of our assumptions as far as, and they're all wrong, right? Everyone yeah. tells you that. Like, even the investors know that. But you need to at least be able to defend yourself and have substan- uh, uh, have quality assumptions that substantiate your projections or any of your market uh, breakdown. And so going through that, and funny enough, I was actually, I was not 
in the room to pitch. I was actually in St. Lucia with my wife, which was amazing. Yeah. And so I was international and we had to work our tails off to make sure that I did a lot of the a lot of like the background on the pitch deck, a lot of the modeling, a lot of the market assumptions, making sure everything checks out. How where's your profit loss? You know, where are you gonna project out profitability? And so I had to make sure that John knew all of these things, you know, by memory. Yeah. And so there was a lot of hard work that went into the pitch deck, went into the story, um, but then went into like the team aspect of it all, which I think paid off and I think Investors could tell we had high-quality marketing, high-quality um, presenter, and high-quality person running the company, and then um, quality assumptions. Yeah. Right. So, um, so concept floats around. We need money in Q4 2018. You close the deal at the end of June, so it's nine-ish month process to raise money. Um, you raised yeah. one and a half billion dollars from three folks or three um, three institutions. Um, a, congratulations. Thank you. And B, what advice do you have for entrepreneurs through that process? No one plays their cards, and so I would say keep a positive mindset throughout. There were times that we just got silence where we would send a model over, man, I worked so hard on that thing and just didn't hear anything for a week. And so your mind just starts going. Yeah. And it's you feel like people you feel like you've made progress and you just keep going to the next yard marker. You keep going up the fairway and then you send something in, you you take a good shot and then you just you don't see where the ball lands. You don't yeah. hear anything, right? And so it's a little nerve-wracking from that standpoint of should we be out talking to other people? Like, and VCs talk, and so yeah. they'll know like where you're going. So you want to be respectful of everybody, right? And so I'd say keep a positive mindset throughout, um, just because you won't always get an immediate response when you want one. And time, you know, a, an hour, you know, feels like forever has passed, right? Mm -hmm. Just you're so you're just in it, and that's just the feeling within the the startup and building phase of it all. But just keep that positive mindset throughout. If you have a bad feeling, let it go. Like, don't let the feeling go. Follow that bad feeling, yeah. right? Follow your gut. And so there, we had some opportunities that it was just like, I don't know that this is right. I don't know if we're aligned with this person um, from a value standpoint, from a um, just general vibe. I don't mean to make it vague, but... Yeah. Um, or to overgeneralize, but there were we had a specific time where you know I was John just didn't feel okay with it, and I was like, hey man, let's let's run with this. Like, yeah. well, there's no reason that we should force ourselves into this marriage. Yeah. So I'd say also keep a positive mindset, but also listen to your gut and try to find people that you like, that you can see yourself working with, that you make a good team, someone that's going to give you honest feedback, um, that can help you. So at the same time, be picky, yeah. but keep a positive mindset. Some of my biggest lessons come from failures. Um, any lessons come from the pitch that didn't go right, or is that kind of it? What you're just talking about the the vibe, the feeling aspect of it. Just let that let that be part of the process, and don't run away from that. Um, I don't know. We we didn't have that experience. We didn't have. We got feedback. But it wasn't feedback of, we got pitch feedback early. Yeah. I'd say from the start, I think the investors wanted to see, especially the lead investor, <laughs> they wanted to see a quality pitch the first go-round. And uh, the first go-round wasn't really the first go-round. And so yeah. the first go-round was virtual, right? The first, I'm, I'm using air quotes of, uh, the first go-around was like, you're in the room with partners and with um associates of the firm, right? And so they wanted to make sure that, that went well. So we we were coached early, but that was that was um that was valuable. Um I will say uh I forget my train of thought. So there you go. Um, um so 
let's come back to petscreening.com sure. in a little bit. Um, but we, we talked about it at the beginning. You made the leap in July of 2018. Um, you didn't come from another startup. Nope. Um, you came from Bank of America, and that's safe to say. Um, and um, you had a one-year-old? Uh, he was just about. Just he was nine months. Nine months? Yeah. Um, so young family, infinite home. Um, you make the leap to a startup. Mortgage. That, with a mortgage. <laughs> you make a leap to a startup that you know is going to have to raise money at some point in time in the next year or two. Likely, right? You're smart enough. Yeah. You've been around yeah. the space. You knew it wasn't um, uh, going to take off without money on the um, as fuel for the fire. What's that like? I think it comes down to a personality standpoint, and I've wanted to do it for so long. So my background. When did was, it? When did? How long have you known you wanted to do it? Like seven years. Okay. So I'm not the fastest. My wife will be the first one to tell you that I'm not the fastest at making decisions. And so, long story short. Um, I wanted to do it for such a long time. And I kept saying, it's not the right time. It's not the right time. It's not the right time. Reading things, listening to podcasts, meeting people locally, and everyone saying, it's not, it's never the right time. Yeah. Right? It's, that's like the, that should be printed on the, uh, printed on the startup dollar if there yeah. ever is one. Like, the, the right time is to do it when you have a nine month old at home, right? Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, not to get super personal, but I'm open about it. It's when my son was born and like, looking at him when he's a tiny baby and like he's laying on the changing table and I'm like okay I've wanted to do this forever this just got harder yeah it's gonna be infinitely harder as we go right as we grow as time goes and so I flipped that on its head and I said now's the easiest time and once I saw that I was like let's do it let's try and so to your point I gave myself a year of saying, I'm gonna go after this for a year. Quickly when I got in, it was, I'm never looking back. Yeah. And I'm zero thoughts or regrets about leaving the corporate world. To that degree, I have to uh, acknowledge my wife to a degree because she's a consultant, right? So she's not a stay-at-home mom. Um, I, we had some security from that standpoint and, and uh, you know, healthcare and some of those things. So yeah. that that is important. Yeah. And it's important to note. But so it is easy to stay. They give nice bonuses. Uh, you can get home before six. You mean at the bank? At the bank, yes. yeah. Sorry. At the bank. You can have a comfortable lifestyle. So that's more or less what I sacrificed. And But then it comes back to personality. And when I look at my career, I want to look back and say, I built something. I impacted the community. I created some jobs. I helped to grow the startup culture and the startup scene. Uh, that's what I want. And so I am a big believer of if you if you say you're going to do it, go do it uh, or try it. And if you fail, say hey. You, or if you didn't like it, that's fine. Yeah. You know. So it was really the d- main driver for me was kind of family and saying I was always going to do it. Yeah. All right. So you um, startup scene here in Charlotte still young. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's not a job board that I know of out there for startup opportunities to no. go work for it. Yeah. Um, how'd you find pet screening? Just plugging away, and so plugging away—that's the easy term for writing for Start Charlotte for two years. And so, uh, I wasn't even set out to do that. And so, I just saying yes to opportunities outside of your grind. Everything in the world tells you to say no, right? There's a book out there called How to Say No or whatever it is, right? Yeah. Um, why do you say yes? So. I never tell short stories. So I, we have in, an hour. And moving down here, uh, it was my goal to get plugged into the startup scene. Plugged in had different definitions, but I wanted to at least get engaged. And to your point, it, it is, I hesitate to even call it small because I just think it's young, right? I, I more or less will say it's in its infancy, even though it's been maybe 
10 years, depending, eight, 10, on, who yeah. you, who, yeah, depending yeah. on who you talk to, right? In D.C., it's decades. In New York, San Fran, it's, you know, half centuries, right? Yeah. And so um, here I just started going to events. And I was probably a fly on the wall for the first nine months moving down. So this, to put time around it, was the beginning of 2016. And it really took me nine months to really, like, understand the scene. And at that time, we have grown immensely the past three or four years from the startup ecosystem. Yes. And proliferation of information and where are events, who are the people, all that stuff. At the time, it was just go, look on Eventbrite, look at Meetup, just go. Pitch Breakfast has been a staple, right? So just go to these events. And so I met Juan Garzon at one of the events and said, hey, my name's David. I have extra time. I want to help with something. And so he said, I need social media people or writers for Start Charlotte. And I said, I'm not any of that. I'm an engineer turned business school guy, very analytical, um, love looking at business cases, love looking at deals and new opportunities, not a journalist, not a social media guru. Uh, I just chewed on it and then finally just said, sure, I'll try one. And then one turned to two and then fell in love very quickly with the conversations I was having with smart people, just people out there just trying things that are just, I see a problem or I see a different way of doing things or I see um, a demand for this out in the market. How do I leverage some technology to go after it um, and try to fill that demand? And so two turned into 10. 10 turned into 25, 25 turned into 50 to 60, I think is what I ended up writing. Yeah. Um, but behind each article was a relationship that I built with um, smart people. And so I went back to that and said, okay, who did I engage well with? Who do I think I connected with? It wasn't like a network or a connection. To me, it was much more of solid relationships with people. Who could I see myself working a decade with, right? So it's not to get super deep again, but it's like, who could I see like, and I was looking for a small firm where I could come in and make an immediate impact and uh, looking for that kind of generalist COO sort of position, right? No one's out there saying, hey, hiring a COO for this four person company. You have to go out and find it and really build it. And so I just met a lot of people and met John along the way. I met John probably September, August, September, October of 2017. I can't remember. So he was in his infancy as far as petscreening.com goes at that point in time. Super young. Yeah. And we, it's not even an overnight thing. There's no job board, like you said. And it took another six months, five, six months for it to like really develop. And I, I was kicking the tires. He was kicking the tires. It wasn't like I didn't set out to be like pet screening. I had people locally that there's still startups here that I thought, and I still think really, really highly of, that I almost you know, jumped on board with them, um, whether they know it or not. Yeah. Like, so uh, there's some local people that I, you know, I had to make some decisions and I have some friends slash mentors locally that I got some great advice from and said, all right, I'll try this pet screen thing for a year and just jumped on board and never looked back. Yeah. What, um, so you did 60 articles for Star Charlotte, give or take, right? Yeah. Right. Um, so you interviewed founders, um, uh, community people, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, what were some of the bigger takeaways that you got from writing those articles? Um, was it was it business lessons? Was it life lessons? Was it a little bit of both? Was there something that stuck out? Um, what'd you learn? I always finished, I finished each interview with two questions. And one was, you know, what do you think about the Charlotte startup ecosystem? And everyone was generally positive. Yeah. It's because we're from the South and everybody's, they, they try to say nice things. I do think that's interesting. I, yeah. There is a lot of that. I don't think it's in the startup ecosystem, yeah. but I think it is selling. Yeah. You're selling around Charlotte. You know that probably yeah. more than everybody. Yeah. Um, the other one was, you know, what's your advice to some poor sap sitting in a cubicle with all these ideas 
saying, oh, I love watching Shark Tank, which yeah. I have my own opinions of what Shark Tank is and what it promotes, but... It's, it's entertainment. It's like, w, it's like WWE, right? Yeah. Or F or whatever it yeah, is. Yeah. I'm on board. I'm yeah. on board. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of their, I was like, what's your advice to that person that has ideas but say, you know, I don't know how to code or I don't know what to do or how to start uh, resounding almost the same thing said different ways. It was just do it. Just try. Just uh, some, one of the fee, what, one of my favorite pieces of feedback was like, just take the first step. Yeah. And then the next day, take another step. And the next day, take another step. And some pro, someone was like, no matter how bad, like one of those like terrible like startup days, how bad that day is, just wake up the next day yeah, and take another step because it's going to be better. And so a lot of that advice, um, I kind of packaged up and kind of created some uh, values and virtues around. So that's kind of where the life lessons come in um, because a lot of this whole startup world, it's you're thinking about it. All day, it's going to affect your relationships. It's going to reflect. It's going to impact your family. It's going to impact your friendships. You just have to make sure, like, you're chasing the right thing with the right people um, in a market you're interested in, solving a problem that you're interested in. That you have that. What's Simon Simek probably mispronouncing his last name? But yeah, you know, start with why, right? Like, that's so important. It's so so important to have that. For whenever you have that terrible startup day that your mind starts wondering on the different things that you can rely on. Here's my why. Yeah. Right. So, um, you're a business guy, um, or a business school guy, engineer by background, wrote, interviewed a lot of, um, founders for Start Charlotte. Um, so one of the, um, one of the knocks Charlotte gets is on the investment, investing side, right? Sure. We don't invest in, uh, we don't take enough risk in investing in small companies. You interviewed a lot of these founders and we're going to have to talk about them one by one. Yeah. But when you were doing it, were you, were in any way, shape or form, you, were you thinking to yourself, this is investable or this isn't? Um, did you ever kind of run through that in your mind as you're talking to the founders or writing the story? Do you see the... Did you start to see the difficulty in, oh, I really like that person, but I don't know if I can invest in the idea? Um, so, yes, yes, and yes. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> so um, it comes down to, I think, how you think about it. Yeah. And so if you're looking to be a joiner, I would be the biggest advocate. Send me an email. Let's get coffee. Like, try it. Ice um, coffee. Yeah, ice coffee. Yeah. yeah, I had hot coffee earlier yeah. today. Just coffee all day, right? Um, and so I'm a massive advocate for it. And so that's part of the thought process of, okay, if you're about to go invest a lot of your time, a lot of your energy, a lot of your emotion, um, a lot of your life to uh, start up. I have plenty of life outside of pet screening. So this isn't yeah. like, you know, a, a life suck, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. but I, you know, it's everything. I think about it all the time. And so, um, you have to at least think about the longevity. Like if I think it's investable, like do other people think it's investable? So there was like some reality checks you got to make along the way, um, along those lines. Uh, we did hear, you know, you, you, you go talk to people. You do hear that sentiment of that it is difficult to raise local money. Mm -hmm. You have to hear check 10 of 10 boxes, 11 out of 10 boxes, depending on yeah. who you talk to. Yeah. Where if you're elsewhere, you need to check seven, seven. eight. Yeah. You need a direction. You need to be in the right direction. Yeah. I... I, William and I honestly didn't think about it a lot from that perspective. Yeah. I just thought more about, is this a quality person? What's the competitive landscape like? Uh, can this person run a business? And do we think we're a good team? Yeah. And let's, let's, give it let's a try shot. it. Let's yeah. give it a shot. Yeah. Um, let's take that first step, so to speak. Right? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let me head back to pet screening then for a little while. Um, so you raised, uh, you raised one and a half. Um, it gets you 18 to 24 months. Um, what does the next 18 to 24 months look like? Hiring sales and marketing, investing in sales and marketing, and just trying to get the brand out there as much as possible. So as far as 
being a solution to outsource your assistance animal verification, optimizing your pet policies, and ensuring you have uh, your liability covered on folks who do not, your non-pet owning residents. So we're the first ones to market to do all of that, uh, or to do any of it, really. And so we need to get, people know they have, uh, property managers know they have these problems, they deal with them every day, but they don't know there's a solution. And so our biggest thing now is like, we need to let everybody know that pet training exists and this is what we do. Um, so to that standpoint, we also had some marketing things, so sales, Let's get out. Let's talk to as many people as possible. Let's try to solve their problems. Let's convey what we do uh, effectively and efficiently. Uh, and then let's convert, right? Then it's the whole sales funnel yeah. process, right? So from a marketing standpoint, we're new to the industry. So we need to concisely and in, a, and in their language convey what we do, yeah. right? And what are the problems they're dealing with? How does our solution work? And why do they want it, right? And so there are other pet solutions out there, not, not around pet data, but it's around pet DNA and dog waste on site or uh, dog park equipment. And so when we're going out to trade shows and we're starting to um, really mass uh, market to the industry, people look at our branding and they say, or they see your name, they think we do something else. Yeah. They think we're competing in a different space and we're having to say, no, 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 we do this. This is your problem, we do something way different than this. Yeah. So that's been eye-opening to me from a, uh, your first to market, that you need to solve around what people expect or what people initially think that you do and then have it to market around, market around that and brand around that to make sure they can see your brand, they can engage with your brand and understand, oh, this is what they do, this is great, I need this, right? And so that's kind of the marketing side to it of what we'll be investing in or what we've already started to invest in, yeah. really. Um, uh, why or how, probably more why, why, do, why does pet screening win, right? Why are you a success story in 10 years? So we will be a success story in 10 years because we are um, untying and untangling the knot of misinformation out there from a assistance animal standpoint. What is an assistance animal, which is different from a service animal? And how do you verify and validate that it's a uh, legitimate assistance animal and not someone just writing a letter and handing it to you or sending you a ID card and you accepting it. Uh, but it is, we are successful in 10 years when we are providing benefits to pet and animal owners as well as property managers, but even outside of property management, property management even into uh, hotels yeah. or Airbnbs. Uh, you see it mostly in airlines that people, more people are willing and wanting to travel with their pets. That's why we're seeing this whole assistance animal, emotional support animal problem in airports and in airlines. And I really hesitate to use the word problem. It's just misinformation yeah. across the board. And so we win if we solve it for property management, we win if we solve it for hotels, airlines, Airbnb, short-term stays, across the board. We want to make sure that pet owners are being accountable and more responsible. Animal owners understand the legal implications and what that means. We want to make sure that insurance companies are working with property managers to say, hey, you, there are property managers out there that have breed restrictions. It's a lot of them. They don't allow pit bulls or German shepherds or Akitas or chows or you name all these different breeds, right? A lot of that is set by insurance companies. <laughs> so we even want to extend into uh, insurance companies to help educate them of saying, hey, let's look at creating some policies out there that are, you know, every breed's allowed, but let's make sure we're covering our risk and compensating ourselves for that risk in the, in the cases that we're taking on that risk yeah. um, by using all this information at our fingertips and all this data 
so we're win, win, win when we're helping all stakeholders in this space, pet owners, animal owners, apartment managers, apartment owners, asset managers, hoteliers, airline folks, Airbnb hosts, insurers, you name it. So is the next is the next 12 to 24 months because there's not to date a current kind of true competitor is the next 12 to 24 months as much of a land grab as you possibly can? Absolutely. Yeah, so that's the sales component to yeah. it, right? Um, and that goes back to your initial question. And so that is our sales team. And so we've invested in bringing in young sales folks that are willing to take ownership of the whole sales development process, doing demos for them. Um, actually being their salesperson, then taking them to account management, owning that whole kind of cradle to grave sales pipeline. And so property management, residential property management is split up really between single family, which is four walls, single family property management and multifamily property management, which you think of larger apartment buildings, right? And so a lot of the single family, there's thousands of them. They're mostly mom and pop. Uh, owners yeah. or in, or managers, right? So they're managing hundreds of single houses. And there's REITs and all this other stuff. And so we're investing in young folks to come and just own regions and to get out and sell and spread the message and own those accounts and to develop those relationships and to solve their problems, essentially. We're also investing on the multifamily side, a more experienced uh, sales team where they're coming in either from within the industry, from another vendor, or they're coming in from actually working in property management that have experienced the problem um, and they recognize the problem that we're solving, problems that we're solving, and they're able to exercise their relationships. They know how to sell into the industry because there's a lot of stakeholders. It's a longer sales cycle. It's a more corporate type of uh, sales experience. So bringing in a little bit more tenured folks on that on that top end side. So really investing in our sales team to do exactly what you just mentioned. It's to we need to do like a pet screening explosion in the market over these next two years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you raise money. It ultimately means that. You, um, it means one of two things, right? You either IPO or you end up selling the company. Um, was um, that was probably always part of the play, right? I mean, that was always known, or did they kind of change the conversation some when y'all started to, talking about it in Q4 of 2018? I'd say it changed the conversation. I don't. It, there was never. I'll be honest. There was never a conversation that was had yeah. when I joined or in those first six months of joining of, okay, you know, the clock's ticking. We've got to go raise money. Yeah. It was very, happenstance isn't the right word, but it was very like, okay, we see the writing on the wall. Like, yeah. and that, I think that's aggressive as to where we were, but I think we said we need partners in this because we realized how big of an opportunity this is and what's in front of us to go get that we said, we better go do this now. How much do you lean on your investors on you know bifurcating your sales team um, and who you're going to hire to fit this role and who you're going to hire to fit that role? Do you lean on them on some of the day to day, or how much do you interact with them on things? Like so we're that? early in that journey. Yeah. We're early in that journey, and so I where I think yeah. we will end up being is monthly updates, yeah. which being the operations slash finance slash dabble in marketing being really the go-to person that's going to be compiling all this stuff on a consistent basis, it seems daunting. It seems like overkill. But I flipped the coin over very quickly and I'm able to see like they're going to be engaged. They want to know what are we thinking, what questions do we have, how could they help. So from that standpoint, I see more of like a frequent strategic relationship with them. I don't see necessarily like a day-to-day, okay, how do we set this up? How do we, you know, how should we think about our sales team? Um, Going back to your earlier question around um, what, you know, learning points throughout the 
due diligence process and the the VC standpoint, it's they're they're asking questions about your sales model. They're asking questions about your sales team. Uh, one of my biggest learning is just being honest. There wasn't ever a point where. You know, we fibbed about anything or tried to hide truth. We were honest, 100% honest about everything. And I think that really came across. I'm sure there are opportunities for people to be embarrassed or to um, be worried about uh, part of their business at this, you know, early junction of saying, I know this needs work and I don't have a plan for it. And, you know, these a lot of founders are type A, wanting to over plan and have, you know, sell everything. And so one of the, my big learnings was just like, be honest, even if it's, you know, you think it's perceived as negative. Yeah. Uh, just be completely honest. But uh, to your sales point or to your question, it's really around uh, our investors. I think it'll be more kind of frequent strategic meetings. Yeah. In talking to startups on a regular basis, one of the things, you know, people always say, and it's hard to kind of digest and I don't know, we're running short on time and I've got a, a VFA question I'm going to run by you too. Yeah. So, um, but one of the things that founders always say and um, investors always say is fail fast. Um, what does that mean to you? Experiment. Everything. We're, we're experimenting with everything. And so I'm a big, I read, I think it's Peter Thiel is like zero yeah. to one. Yeah. I say that multiple it's times. It's in that bag over there. On yeah. a daily basis. <laughs> Unbelievable book. Uh, we're going to zero to one in everything. And so even if we don't make it to one, I'm saying let's experiment. You know, let's, for our new folks coming in the, to our sales team, it's, you know, you guys get to help figure out the recipe. Like, you guys get to take ownership of this. I think that's really cool. I think that's an awesome opportunity, but we're experimenting with everything. And so, if we check, you got to be, you know, ready and willing to try something, and you better be ready and willing to change. And so, we're trying all of these different things. We're standing up processes, going to zero and to one, and everything that we're doing, um, really formalizing process because we're now bigger. We're we're big enough now that we're not able to watch each other's backs and know exactly what everyone's doing. Yeah, um, you're in a bank. Two years ago, yeah, um, where the idea of failing fast is probably not, um, you know, a big pat on the back, so to speak. Yeah. Um, so how quick? How did you go from zero to one in that? Um, were you really reluctant at first to try and fail? Like, oh God, I can't actually fail. It's a different mentality, and yeah. it's not from that standpoint, or at least I didn't approach it from that standpoint, I approached it from the, how do I overanalyze this? And then you just run out of time because the next problem shows up an hour later. And so you just have to, what I learned very, very, very quickly, it's you just have to take as much information as you have it, you know, at the time to just make a decision and move forward and be, be willing to make and admit you made a wrong decision, which is hard. It's really, really hard when you're taught, and especially yeah. in business school, you're taught to like overanalyze everything. And, and as an you know, engineer, right? Gotta I mean, maximize, come, yeah, yeah, I'm very yeah. black or white, and you know, you maximize your uh, value for shareholders, right? Yeah. And so that doesn't scream try and possibly fail. Yeah. So speaking of trying, um, I mean, effectively, you're trying out a young 22 year old. Um, who wants to be involved in startups when you hire a BFA fellow. Um, but you're giving it a shot. So you're hiring a BFA fellow. They'll start with you, I assume, late July, early August. Um, how'd you make the decision? What's it like? It came down to folks I met locally. And I was familiar with BFA really from when they started just from I went to business school at University of Maryland. Mm-hmm. And so being in, in D.C., uh, VFA really presented themselves while I was in the midst of getting my MBA. So I was familiar with them there. And they've changed a lot over the past, I'll date myself, but over the past seven years. Seven, eight years, yeah. Yeah, and so their model has changed drastically. And so from I was familiar with it there. Where it really got the win for me was meeting VFAs and alums locally around Charlotte. And so I was really impressed with their caliber, really impressed with how they thought, really impressed with their backgrounds. And it just was honestly, again, like the 11th hour where we, 
were in the midst of fundraising and saying, okay, we, we need to kind of fill the bench here. We need to find some candidates. And so for wearing the HR hat for the first time, going out and you know engaging the VFA community and understanding is this a fit for us, almost having to pitch it internally to John, who I'm working dated, you know, together with every day, say, hey, check out this program. You're not familiar with it, but I think it could be valuable and just trying it and going and having conversations. Their model does work where it's not necessarily pay to play. It's, you know, yeah. pay if you play, yeah. right? And so I think that's a, an awesome, awesome, awesome model uh, for a company of our size and our stage, especially where we were. Because now the scene's different where you know, we don't have to, well, we have to be uh, very strategic with money we're spending, but we didn't really have the comfort of it having to close around you know, when we started to look for talent. And so VFA was attractive in the sense that uh, I thought highly of the folks locally and I was really looking for a skill set specific to kind of like scrappiness and the right person from a from a human standpoint because uh, we need good people but also good humans to join us at this point because um, we need quality over quantity. Yeah, so small team, you want to pull the right person in. So it was a number of different things, but I think the icing of the cake was a lot of the advocates for VFA locally uh, pushed me over the edge. Yeah, no, it makes sense. Yeah. Um, so we're going to assume that PetScreening.com is wildly successful. You sell in five to ten years because that's the model, hopefully. Um, do you start your own thing? Do you go back to the bank? Um, what do you do? Not the bank. Not the bank? Not the bank. <laughs> I restart my own thing. Yeah. I mean, I'm always scheming. I'm always trying to think about things differently. And even to this day, there's ideas where, you know, I want to grab a buddy and, you know, kind of start moving on something else. Yeah. Not to say I have a, I re- love what I have going on. Yeah. But always tinkering. How can we solve this problem using technology or how can we connect these two things to, you know, provide some value uh, that, you know, someone would pay for. Right. So I love that mentality and trying to solve problems that way whether it's real estate or SaaS companies. Um, so I'm, it's always tinkering in the back of my mind. Uh, five to ten years. You're still tinkering. I'm still tinkering, yeah. Is that Was that hardwired or was that learned for you? Uh, both. So some of it was uh, family. So some of it is how we were raised. My uh, family's not entrepreneurs, but had that mindset. And so um, that trickled down and the apples didn't fall far from the tree. So my sister and I are very, uh, very entrepreneurial in how we think. And so it was uh, relatable in that sense, but it was also learned and I had to force myself, which is why it took me so long to get into the startup world. Uh, is engineers and the type of I wasn't computer science engineer yeah. right so I wasn't coding it was you you analyze the problem it's a black or white answer and then you move forward to the next problem and then you solve that one right and so it's very regimented going to MBA then it's how do you maximize your value right and taking a substantial pay cut and taking a lot of risk and jumping into the startup world isn't necessarily like what they're preaching on a day-to-day basis. That mindset's starting to change as to how how do you create value by starting a company and uh, leveraging an idea. But um, that was also something I just struggled with. So it was kind of the engineer mindset, turned MBA. There was a lot, and I thought I had a shiny resume. I got Bank of America. I got these nice, shiny brands on there from schools, good degrees. It took me a long time. It was almost to my detriment that I just never took the jump because I was nervous of everything that I was taught from a like academic, educational standpoint of what are you doing? This is yeah. you're supposed to say no in this situation. That's the formula, William. That's the equation. Right? Yeah, it is. Yeah. So it took me a long time. Yeah, no, that's funny. Yeah. So well, I'm glad you made the jump. Yeah, me too. So me too. Um, and I think you made the jump with the right opportunity. I'm excited to. 
um, now that you even previously to have the money in the bank I mean it's a um, it's a sound concept uh, in a market that has to move to it Um, and so it seems like right time right place and now you just got to go execute to make it right company so um, and I think and hope you will yeah same yeah same so uh, but thanks for carving out some time with me today certainly enjoyed having you on the podcast that was a blast happy to do it yeah so thanks cheers William Bissett is an investment advisor representative with Seacrest Blakey & Associates, a registered investment advisor. Opinions expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect those of Seacrest Blakey & Associates. The topics discussed and opinions given are not intended to address the specific needs of any listener. Seacrest Blakey & Associates does not offer legal or tax advice. Listeners are encouraged to discuss their financial needs with the appropriate professional regarding your individual circumstance. Investments described herein may be speculative and may involve a substantial risk of loss. Interests may be offered only to persons who qualify as accredited investors under the Securities Act and a qualified purchaser as defined in Section 2A, Paragraph 51, Line A, under the Company Act or an eligible employee of the management company. There generally is no public market for the interests. Prospective investors should particularly note that many factors affect performance, including changes in market conditions and interest rates, and other economic, political, or financial developments. Past performance is not and should not be construed as indicative of future results.